and amen. Thank you, Melissa. I would like to say, before we get going, that here at TVC, this is a, a judgment-free zone related to potlucks. I heard all of you gasp when Melissa said that she didn't bring anything, and I just want to shut that down right now. Good morning, familia. Damn, you guys are really going to get at that. Well, as you already just heard, my name is Eric Solomon. I get to serve as the pastor of this particular congregation. Like Melissa said, we are part of a, a family of congregations called Wheaton Bible Church alongside our West Chicago and Iglesia de Pueblo congregations. And one of my favorite things is that even as an extended familia across zip codes, we are all doing the same thing this morning. We are all diving into God's word together. In fact, we're all in the same passage together in this passage in Matthew 9. And, and if you've been with us, you know that we have been going through this, this series in the gospel of Matthew. We have been uh, uh, dividing that series into sections. And, and the section that we're in, like the, the screen behind me says, is it, we've called the King's Mission. The previous section was about, was about the, the people of the kingdom, right? And, and Jesus is talking about, about who is in this kingdom and, and what the kingdom looks like. But, but now in this section, he has transitioned from teaching this Sermon on this Mount, this beautiful sermon, into talking about his mission. And more than just talking about his mission, showing his mission, doing his mission. And so as we step into this text, as we dive into God's word, and as we enter the, the part of the story that we're in this morning... We watch Jesus step off the boat, but, but really we're coming face to face with a king on mission to save us from the sin that's killing us. In this text, I think that there are, are three angles that, that Matthew tries to give us as we go through these different scenes to point to that mission. This, this king's mission to save sinners like me and like you, he's, he's going after these three different aspects on the same central truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And so I, I, before we dive in, we've got those, the points up on the screen, but I, I want to pray that we would be able to receive what the Lord has for us this morning in this text. So would you pray with me? Lord, your word is God breathed. These words are, are not just words on a page. By the power of your spirit, they are words that, that give us life. And so this morning, we submit ourselves to your word. We position ourselves under the authority of your word. We, we strive to enter the scenes that your word is describing, not just to, to like watch a movie, but, but to, to really see Jesus, our king, in these scenes. And would you change our hearts as we read and as we study and as we dive in, Lord? Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this moment be acts of worship before you? Because you are our rock and our redeemer. And this morning, we want to see you in this text. Probably sings in your son's name. Amen. So that central truth, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Here are the three angles that I think Matthew gives us in this text. The first is Jesus forgives sinners. The second is that Jesus calls real sinners, not theoretical sinners. And the third is that Jesus makes sinners new. He forgives, he calls, and he makes new. These are three angles, but it's the same truth. And I think Matthew shows us these three angles. Like I said, by, by tracking Jesus through town and seeing all these interactions he, he gets himself into. So let, let me just dive in. Let's start with the first one. Jesus forgives sinner. Have you ever gone to the doctor with a complaint, right, something that was bothering you? And you thought you were going to get one diagnosis, maybe a little bit of Advil, 
maybe like, a, hey, just take it easy for a few days. But then you were told that there was something more going on. Right? You think you have one problem, a smaller issue, but really that your problem goes much deeper, that more testing needs to happen, that, that, that we need to figure out a little bit more about what's happening, that what you're dealing with is really just a symptom of a deeper problem. This first scene is a bit like that. Jesus, the great physician, knows exactly what's wrong with us, and it goes much deeper than we realize, and it's exactly what he's doing in this beginning of this text. Look at the, look at the beginning, starting verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own town. Now, if you were with us last week, you know what's happening, but just to catch you up, Jesus has freed two men that were being held captive by demons on one shore of the, the Sea of Galilee, only to be chased away by the neighbors of those guys. By the, by the city that surrounds, they didn't want what Jesus was offering. And so, so Jesus gets back into the boat, and he makes his way to a, a town on the other side of that lake. And as he continues to teach, as he continues to love people, as, as he continues to invite people to repentance and into his kingdom, the text says, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is back in town, and these men have been, maybe they've been waiting for him. Or, or maybe they've just been tossing around ideas now that they've heard that this guy is on the scene, and, and someone finally decided to do something about it. Whatever it was that happened, as soon as Jesus' feet hit the shores and he walks into town, these men, they, they pick up their paralyzed friend who has been so incapacitated by his physical brokenness that he is lying on a mat. And they bring him to Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus does not just see desperation or pleading. He sees faith. When Jesus saw their faith. Not just the faith of the paralyzed man, but the faith of those who were carrying him. I think about that for a moment. Familia, how many of us are involved enough with our brothers and sisters in Christ Honest enough with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we don't just believe Jesus for what we need, but for what we know they need. Because we've seen their need. They've invited us into their need. He saw their faith. But then he spoke to this man. This man who's trapped in his body. And yet, instead of reactivating the ligaments and joints of this man's body, Jesus reaches into his heart and says, your sins are forgiven. What's happening here? Right? Is Jesus ignorant of what this guy really needs? No, Jesus is not ignorant of what's happening in this moment. In fact, I think he knows better than anyone exactly what this man needed. And so he gave him what he most desperately needed. He forgave his sins. Jesus is doing something radical here, and, and we may miss it because we read this story on the other side of the cross, which means we have at least a category for this, for Jesus forgiving our sins. But this man, the crowd that's around them, they don't really have a category for, for what's happening in front of them. They got a category for God forgiving sins, a category that requires a temple and, and a priest and, and a sacrifice, but... Jesus is doing something brand new here. And as one writer says a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I might add, Jesus is making a, a calculatedly outrageous statement. In other words, 
Jesus is being Jesus and revealing more of who he is and what his mission is. He knows who is lying in front of him in this moment. He knows the crowd that's surrounding them and he knows the religious people that are pressing in around trying to figure out what's going on. And so Jesus pokes the bear. And then the bear starts to growl. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. And from their perspective, they're not wrong. I mean, here's the Bible logic that their their minds and hearts are probably working through, right? The, The prophet Isaiah says that God alone has the authority to forgive sins. This man, Jesus, just told this guy here that his sins are forgiven. This this mere man, as far as we can tell, who was born and grew up and eats and sleeps and gets tired. So if God alone forgives sins, and this man just claimed to forgive sins, well, then isn't he sort of claiming to be God? Isn't he guilty of blasphemy by doing that? And according to Leviticus, isn't blasphemy punishable by death? Doesn't Jesus deserve to die? The gears are turning as the teachers of the the law are whispering, and they would be right, if Jesus is indeed blaspheming. But the irony of this moment is that we know more than they do, and Jesus is not in fact blaspheming. They are the ones who are blaspheming, calling the work of God the work of some mere human. You see, at this point in the text, the the people may not really know what to make of Jesus quite yet, but but if you've been tracking with these stories, you know that Jesus has refused any claim that he is some mere man. He's made some pretty bold claims thus far, bold claims like the one he just made. And so what the teachers of the law are thinking, calling Jesus' actions blasphemous is not only ignorant, it's also not really true. Look at verse 4, knowing their thoughts. Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? I love when Jesus is being Jesus because that's like a really hard question. I mean, think about that. Which is easier? On the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, well, prove me wrong. Prove that I didn't forgive this man's sins. On the other hand, it's not so simple Because it's one thing to say it, it's quite another to be telling the truth. Because remember, only God forgives sins. And let's be honest also with Jesus here. He's not really asking them. This is rhetorical. And so his rhetorical question is piercing these whispers, and he explains why he did what he did, why he said what he said. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he says to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. I want you to see what I'm doing, Jesus says. I I need you to know that I'm not just some traveling healer, some preacher with a charismatic shtick. I want you to know that I'm not just here or even primarily here to fix what's physically broken. I'm here to fix what's spiritually broken. Not just the cracks that are on the surface, but the earthquake that's rumbling underneath, making everything unstable. And so just so you can see what I'm talking about, what I'm doing, I'll do both. Don't miss this. Don't miss the point of this story. This healing story is not just about a physical, uh, paralytic, paralyzed man walking back home, even though that is amazing. No, Jesus tells these teachers of the law that this is about more than healing a physical paralytic. This is about Jesus healing a spiritual paralytic. 
Jesus came to repair what was broken, to rescue what was taken. He came to solve the problem that lies under every other problem, sin. You see, at the end of the the day, our most basic issue, our most basic problem, our deepest need is to be healed from the... You might know, but but she's been paralyzed from the shoulders down for over 50 years. She says this, I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. She understands her deepest need, our deepest need. In one article, it's too good for me not to quote, she, she talks through the article describing her struggle with God right after her accident, God not healing her. If, if she just believed enough, she's, she's making the circuit at, at as many healing services as she can. She's trying everything. She's pleading with the Lord, and then she writes this, I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things, but they're symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions, our sins, as he grows our love for him. Now, anyone can say that. But someone that's had to live her life for 50 years paralyzed, trusting in the Lord every single step of the way, that hits different. You see, it's not that the physical doesn't matter. It's that the physical healing is not the primary goal. Forgiveness of sin is. Being restored in in, in Jesus and the image of God, that's the point. I mean, imagine if someone you love is, is, is in an accident and is rushed to the ER, and if the ER doctor runs in and starts working on their broken arm rather than the internal bleeding that they have in their head. You might think this person has lost their mind. They don't understand the gravity of this situation. Familia, you and I, we are the ones that are in desperate need of healing. And like a car crash, sin has destroyed a lot of different things. And yes, our broken arms need to be repaired, but they're not at the top of the list. And Jesus never fumbles around like some kind of ER doctor trying to figure out what to do, hoping that we survive. Jesus knows that he needs to deal with our hearts first. He needs to save our souls first. He needs to heal our sin sickness before he starts to restore all the other things that sin has taken. He is crystal clear on our greatest need, and he is telling this man, he is telling this crowd, he is telling these teachers what that need is, showing why he came and why they need him. And so the question that hangs before them as this man picks up his mat and goes home is, do they believe him? Do we believe him? Do we believe that our deepest need is first and foremost the forgiveness of our sins and that everything else might follow after that? That our sins need to be dealt with. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Do we believe that we are in that group? Sinners that are in desperate need of Jesus. These teachers, they're too concerned Bible-checking Jesus that they're not even heart-checking themselves. But then, while they're busy whispering about Jesus, Jesus is confronting them. The crowd is busy being amazed. And yet, just like the teachers of the law, they're also focused on the wrong thing. Look at the text. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Now, on the surface, this is a better response But not by much. 
Because you see, while the teachers of the law are too focused on what Jesus said, the crowd is too focused on what Jesus did, and it filled them with awe, but not with faith. Here's why I can say that. The key to unlocking what's happening in their hearts is that last phrase. They praise God who had given such authority to man. You see, the teachers of the law, well, they draw the wrong conclusion because they are hyper-focused on Jesus' words. But then the crowd draws the wrong conclusion because they are hyper-focused on Jesus' actions. They glorify God because of what they see, but they don't actually see Jesus for who he really is. They don't see that the physical miracle verifies the spiritual miracle. They are filled with awe and not with faith. And so, familia, listen. Being amazed with Jesus is not enough. We have to believe that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, and that we are who he says we are. Do we actually believe that he came to forgive our sins? That he died to pay for our sins, that by faith in him our sins can be forgiven? You see, in order to believe that, we have to believe that we are actually real sinners, And I think that's what happens in this next verse as we encounter an, shall we say, unlikely disciple of Jesus. Jesus forgives sinners, yes, but he forgives real sinners who know that they are sinners, sinners like Matthew. You see, sinners like Matthew, well, that's what I would call real sinners, not theoretical sinners, people who actually know that they're sinners and recognize that they have a terminal illness, that the only cure is Jesus. The language that I'm using here of real and theoretical sinners actually comes from the book that we've been reading in our men's and women's summer reading groups, this book Deeper that Melissa talked about earlier. Now, it's, it's a book that, about how we grow as a disciples, but what I love about it is that the author doesn't just give us a bunch of things to do. He just keeps going back to the gospel over and over again, reminding us that what starts our life in Christ is also what keeps and grows our life in Christ. In other words, the mission of Jesus doesn't stop when we believe. It continues because his forgiveness courses through our entire lives, healing us from the sin that's been trying to kill us. And so he makes this point, Dane Ortland, the author, between real and theoretical sinners multiple times in the book. But I'll just read one of the quotes in his chapter on honesty. He writes this, we grow as we own up to being real sinners, not theoretical sinners. All of us as Christians acknowledge generally that we are sinners. Rarer is the Christian who opens up to another about exactly how he or she is a sinner. But it is in this honesty that life blossoms. It's not enough to memorize and believe Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To grow in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, we need to believe and keep believing and live out the mission of Jesus. Not just that all have sinned, but that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is precisely what Matthew does. In this particular scene, look at the text, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he, Jesus, told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. You see, the the teachers, they're muttering among themselves. The crowd is speechless, but in the distance, there's a guy who's in a a, a booth that's too busy, focused on his cash money to notice that his king is walking past. But his king is not too busy to notice him. To notice someone that everyone has been working really hard to avoid this tax man in the booth. Now, if you think we struggle with the IRS now, forgive, any, forgive me, anybody that works for the IRS. I, don't, I think I know 
you all well enough to know most of you? I don't know. If you think we struggle with the IRS now, it's nothing compared to tax collectors in the Roman Empire. And it's not just because everyone hated taxes. It's because when Jesus walked this earth, everyone hated tax collectors. One scholar describes them as easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. Religious and political traitors and and trained extortionists. These tax collectors, they would bid for contracts with Rome to collect those taxes and then charge a premium on top of them to turn a profit. In other words, they not only helped the empire, they also got rich off of their neighbors, overwhelming them with a tax burden that they could not meet and enforcing it with Roman muscle. And here's the worst part. They weren't being forced into it. They chose this job. They competed for the contract. They fought for the chance to extort their neighbors. These men were sinners, and they knew it. And I imagine they were probably in this situation long enough that they might not care anymore. Their neighbors couldn't care less for them. They were excluded from society, from the synagogue, and they were treated worse than lepers. And this is the man who's writing this gospel telling us about Jesus. And now nine chapters in, he inserts the story about his call to tell us of how Jesus met him. He, a tax collector, was called by Jesus. He did not pursue Jesus. Jesus pursued him. Jesus called Matthew to follow him. The focus in this text is not so much on Matthew's response as Jesus' outrageous action calling a tax collector. It is not so much about how Matthew followed, but who Jesus called to follow him. A sinner. Someone who not only needs him, but is primed to know that he needs him. Someone who has been told over and over again by society and by his neighbors, whether verbally or socially or even physically, that he does not belong, that he is alone, that he is greedy and and a traitor and, and worse than even the most contagious people in society, worse because his contagion has cut him off from everyone that he loves and is and is closing his heart off to the God who made him. That is until that same God comes strolling up to the tax booth looking him in the eye, all the way to the heart, and telling him, follow me. The point is not that Matthew got up to follow him. The point is that Jesus called Matthew a tax collector to follow him. The point is that there's hope. No one is too far gone for God to call them back. No one is so far away that God won't draw them back. No one is is too deep in sin that they cannot be made alive again in him because Jesus pursues sinners. Jesus calls real sinners. This is why Matthew interrupts his story and and, and inserts his, his call in here, not to bring glory to himself, but to bring glory to God by showing us how far he really was. In a powerful way, this, this gospel writer, I mean, one of the the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus, helped establish this church, wrote himself into the story and said, I need Jesus just as much as you do. Jesus Christ saves sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul may have wrote those words, but Matthew is the one who paints a picture of what that looked like. Because Jesus calls real sinners, not theoretical sinners, sinners who know they need Jesus, not just a little, not just for most things, but for everything. 
who know that apart from Jesus, they are lost, they are, they are dead. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus calls, real sinners, well, they, they hear the voice of the one who loves their souls. Not just a mere man who is blaspheming, or like we'll see in just a moment, a, a teacher who may not know his place. So what happens in this next scene, Matthew quickly transitions us from him getting up to follow Jesus to a scene where Jesus is sitting side by side with Matthew at his house, side by side with all kinds of sinners. Look at the text starting at verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, why? Why doesn't your teacher, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? The, the transition from the moment on the road with, with Matthew to, to sitting in the, at this party at this house is, is kind of sharp. Matthew doesn't really give any transition. It's a, he just kind of calls him. Matthew follows him, and now we're at his house having a party. But it's not as sharp as the Pharisees who are getting bolder than these teachers of the law. Bolder, but, but still not bold enough because you see the teachers, they, they whispered among themselves and these Pharisees, well, they whisper to the disciples, but no one asks Jesus. Just like the teachers, Jesus is going to answer these Pharisees in a way they don't expect. You see, Jesus wasn't focused on, on who most people would categorize as the most impressive picks for his team. Jesus' mission was not about making sure he had the most influence or the best numbers or the highest popularity rating. His mission was saving sinners especially the sinners that these so-called righteous people wouldn't dare approach, let alone sit next to. Because Jesus is not impressed with status. He is impressed by faith. And so here he is at a party with sinners, surrounded by criminals and traitors, the worst of the worst, and Jesus is so relaxed among them that he is having dinner with them. Jesus is not like super uncomfortable, worried that they might touch him and contaminate his plans for his kingdom. His blood pressure is not rising as more and more of the underworld ring the doorbell and sit down. No, there's something about this Jesus that attracts them, that draws them in, that, that, that sits them down at a table that's set for them across from their king. It's because Jesus loved to be with sinners, and they loved to be with him. Because this is who he came for. And yet the question of the Pharisees rips through this moment because these Pharisees, well, they're not seeking information. They are making an accusation. They are, in essence, complaining to the disciples about the, the kind of people that this king was attracting. And Jesus will not let the Pharisees off the hook. Look at verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? He hears the question of the Pharisees. Kind of like a parent hears uh, children that are doing the wrong thing, that don't really notice that the parent is around the corner. And then they run. As soon as these Pharisees are standing in front of them. I imagine slack-jawed because he's talking to them, and he's not responding with some rhetorical question. He's, he's giving them a rabbinic rebuke. Right, listen, he starts with reality. The, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. But, but listen to what Jesus, this is the gut punch that Jesus makes. He looks them in the eye and he tells these Pharisees, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes scripture to them, the prophet Hosea. Right, he addresses them, not by their titles, not, by, not as teacher, but in, in response to their actions 
as people who still have much to learn, because they do. And then he quotes scripture at them, at, at people who pride themselves with memorizing God's word, studying it. He treats them like beginners who don't know what they're talking about, because they don't. The passage he quotes is from Hosea 6, where God is actually confronting his people. He's, he's asking what he's going to do with them. He's, he's accusing them of their, their fleeting love, charging them with, with uh, killing his prophets and condemning them for their religion over righteousness. And he tells them point blank, I want mercy more than sacrifices. What's right more than what's religious. You're not getting it. And Jesus is telling Pharisees the same thing. You are not getting it. It is precisely their religion that is keeping them from righteousness in this moment, from loving the people God loves. In their desire to be holy and set apart and and separate for God, they ended up separating themselves from God and where he was working, calling sinners to salvation. So Jesus lays out his purpose for them. "I, I came to call sinners those who know that they are sinners, not those who think that they are righteous. You see, I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus in this moment. He's not saying, I came for sinners rather than righteous people, as if there's some people that can be righteous apart from Jesus. The world is not divided between bad people and good people. It is divided between humble and arrogant people, between those who know that they are sinners and those who think that they are righteous. Jesus pursues and attracts sinners who know that they are desperate for someone to save them. The the reason Jesus hangs out with sinners is not necessarily because they are so welcoming to him, even though over and over again they are. It's because they are so needy. They are so sick. They, they know that something's wrong. Those who recognize their sins are those who are most ready to hear the saving message of Jesus because they're not deceiving themselves, thinking that they're good, that they've, they've got it all together. They don't really need anything. They know that they're lost. And this is what makes grace so incredible when we realize just how much we need it, when we understand what he saved us from, when we stop taking it for granted. One commentator, Daniel Doriani, explains it like this. He says, God's generosity, it, it actually takes two forms. Right? He gives gifts we don't deserve, right? grace, and he withholds punishments we do deserve, mercy. Sadly, many take God's generosity for granted so that amazing grace has become boring grace. It is boring because we no longer think of ourselves as sinners, or at least not as great sinners. Many of us might theoretically agree with the Bible that we have sinned and need Jesus, but the question is, do we really agree? Not just that our sins are kind of bad or or not so great, but that our sins, our specific sins, right, The, the, the anger that bursts out when we yell at someone we love, The greed that makes us hoard money or possessions, worried that we won't have enough. The lust that makes us turn people into objects to be used digitally or personally. The pride that bubbles up that lies to to protect our reputation or take credit for someone else's work. The the self-centeredness that dehumanizes others as obstacles to be overcome. Our sins, our actual sins, they all set us up in rebellion against God. They wreak havoc on this world that he made. All of them make us essentially flip off our creator. Or maybe in more subtle ways, ask why those kinds of people are coming to church. The question of the Pharisees 
is a question that's asked by people who have a theoretical grasp of their sin, who have lost their grip on reality and believe that somehow they are more deserving of God than others who bear his image and at the very least recognize him when he sits at the table with them. Do we see ourselves as the object of Jesus' mission, as part of the sinners he came to save, Not just did we used to see ourselves that way, but do we still see ourselves that way? Watching Jesus in this scene, it is clear to me that following in his footsteps is about more than just checking things off a list. It's about being with people who don't have it all together, even in ways that we might not be used to or familiar with because we understand deeply that we never had it all together. We understand deeply that Jesus is the one puts us back together, who healed us, who made us whole. I think, and hear me out on this, I think we need to stop pretending that the mission of the church is to stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. I think we need to actually follow the king on his mission to save sinners by being with and eating with sinners. Never sinning with sinners. Never, Jesus never sinned with sinners, but he always loved sinners. And his mission is for those who know that they're sinners, who remember that they're sinners saved by grace, not for those who think they're righteous. Why? Because Jesus forgives sinners, and he calls sinners to follow him, real sinners, not not theoretical sinners, but his his mission for sinners is actually something brand new, something that is, is better than religion, something that is better than anyone could ever imagine. And this is why I named our third point here, Jesus makes sinners new, because the last few verses of our text, they're they're still set at this party, but but the accusation of the Pharisees that's trying to, to make its way among the disciples turns into these disciples of John that make their way to Jesus to ask him a question directly, and Jesus' answer is very enlightening. You see, they have a question about old ways, and Jesus answers by pointing them to a new way. Because Jesus' mission is something new, something different, something better than what's become of his people and their understanding of what he said, their misunderstanding, their religion. Look at verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked Jesus, him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I think that this is a real question, and I can say that because for the first time, someone's actually asking Jesus something. You see, up until this point, Jesus has interrupted the complaints of the teachers of the law, the accusations of the Pharisees that are being made against him. But now there's a genuine question, I think, about a real and a, and a good practice, fasting. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about a, the, a righteous way to fast. For context on this question, though, I, I want you to remember that the John that they're talking about is the John that we met in the Jordan, that, that baptized Jesus, that was preaching repentance, preparing the way for Jesus. This John, if you listen to the, 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 the way he's described in the text, is a, a man who embodied repentance, right? He denies his body. He wears the clothes of repentance. He eats the kind of food that communicates self-denial and lament and turning to God. And so, It makes sense to me that his disciples would do something similar through fasting, through the denial of food. But there's another group that's around them that also fast that the disciples of John talk about, these Pharisees. History records these Pharisees, they would fast twice a week, even though those fasts were not commanded by God. There's nothing wrong with that until you start to measure holiness by that. 
which is maybe what the Pharisees were doing and, and maybe what the disciples of John were wrestling with. But, but even in the text, that's not really the focus because Jesus' response is not really harsh or confrontational. He, he kind of slips back into teacher mode and gives three illustrations to answer them. Look at verse 15. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the, the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. The first image Jesus uses here is, is a wedding, a, a party. And he asked the question, how can the wedding guests mourn while they are celebrating something amazing? There, there's a time to mourn, but a wedding is not it. That time will come, and, and, and it will be an appropriate time to fast then, but, but not right now. And, and I want you to see what he's doing with this illustration, because he is equating his disciples with wedding, wedding guests, but he is also equating himself with the bridegroom. This is not just some great illustration Jesus thought up. One theologian says of this moment that it is the highest Christological claim, the highest claim to being God that Jesus has made up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Why? God portrays himself, illustrates images himself in the Old Testament over and over again as the bridegroom. In the prophets, over and over again, the people of God are portrayed not just as a nation, but as a bride who has broken the marriage covenant every time it goes after idols and, and pursues these other bridegrooms. And so Jesus is being very deliberate with his word choices here. As deliberate, I might add, and as provocative as he was when he told the paralytic that your sins are forgiven. And yet Jesus is not done. Like any good preacher, I might add, he multiplies illustrations to get to his point. Illustration number two, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse, which is pretty practical, right? Like if you're going to fix a hole in a shirt, you better have cloths that have already been pre-shrunk because otherwise you're going to be asking for trouble. But it's because there's something incompatible between unshrunk cloth that's never been washed before and old clothes that have been to the ringer. Something as incompatible as this second illustration, or this third illustration, new wine and old wineskins. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, I imagine <clears throat> that many of you are not using wineskins. Right? Okay. So I want to explain. I don't want to waste time if you guys use wineskins all the time. But, but in this story, a wineskin is a bag that's made out of animal skins that were treated, that were leathered, that were sewn together. And if it was new, a new wineskin would be elastic. It would be flexible enough to handle the process of fermentation of new wine with all of the gases and the pressures that would go in there. But an old wineskin, over time, would stiffen, would lose its flexibility, and the mistake of pouring new wine into old wineskins was not only an expensive mistake, it was an explosive one. Right? Because the new wine would keep doing what it's supposed to do, but the old wineskin would not. Instead of flexibility, they would explode. And so everyone knows you pour new wine into new wineskins, and that prevents the loss of both new wine and the new wineskin. So, so here's Jesus' point as I explain all that. What's happening here the kingdom he is preaching, the mission he is on, the gospel, the good news, the message of the kingdom is new wine. And it requires new wineskins, structures and containers and disciplines and practices that all point to the gospel and work with the rhythm of the gospel, not against it. The religion 
that tells us to do what God has not commanded us to do in order to be accepted by God, that piles rules on top of regulations, on top of laws, saying that we have to do all of this in order to be accepted by God, to to be able to stay in relationship with God, well, those are old wineskins. And the gospel of grace wrecks that because the way to God is not to do all of these right things. It's to believe in Jesus. And so he's not telling them, listen, you need to ignore the Old Testament, everything in it. All this is is done. You don't have to worry about that. Way back in chapter 5, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. What he is saying is that if we keep trying to do what we've always done, these religious practices to try and, and fit his message of grace, to try and supersede the message of grace, this good news of salvation into old ways of doing things, trying to justify ourselves before God, it's not going to work. It's going to blow up in our faces. The, the questions of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and even the disciples of John, these are all old wineskin questions. Jesus is doing something new. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. We don't need a priest. We don't need a temple. We don't need a sacrifice. We need Jesus because Jesus is doing something new. He is pursuing sinners. Holiness is not afraid to be around sinners. Holiness separates us from sin, not from sinners, because the gospel is for sinners like you and like me. Jesus is doing something new where we don't have to wonder if we checked all the right boxes and did all of the right things in order to be accepted by God. The gospel is what brings us back into relationship and what keeps us in relationship with Jesus. Jesus is doing something new. He is making sinners new. There's a theologian who once wrote this. He says, forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Which is easier, Jesus asked the teachers of the law, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? On this side of the cross, we know the answer to that question It's actually easier for Jesus to say, get up and walk. Why? Because he's the creator. He's the one who can heal bodies as easily as he placed stars in the sky and sets limits for the ocean. But to be able to say your sins are forgiven and to mean it, that they are truly and really taken care of, well, that cost Jesus everything. It was far from easy. It took God becoming human And living with his image bearers and being rejected by them, wrongly accused, tortured by them, innocent of all of their charges, innocent of any sin ever, and then nailed to a cross in agony and in pain and gasping for air until his final breath. The scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The innocent one was made guilty for us. The sinless one became sin for us, to save us, to free us, to make us new, to make forgiveness actual. He died for us. He was buried for us. And three days later, he came back to life for us. Because Jesus not only frees us from sin, he gives us new life in him. He he calls real sinners, those who know that they are sinners, not theoretical sinners, those who think that they are righteous. He calls real sinners to come follow him because only real sinners can become truly righteous. This is the gospel we believe. And this is the gospel we proclaim every time we gather and every time we approach this table of communion that we're going to celebrate this morning. This morning as we celebrate communion together, I want us to be remembering and sitting in and and praying in the gospel. 
Now, as we prepare to eat and drink, something we do um, just to make sure that we can get a chance to, to eat and drink, to do that together, I want us to actually open up the cup and the bread together, not just to get the crinkling out of the way, but so that we can do it together. So I'm going to give you a minute, and we'll get back in it. All right, we ready? I'm hearing crinkles. There's less of them. Listen, family, at, at this table, like the table that was in Matthew's house, we are surrounded by sinners. We are rubbing shoulders with and sitting next to sinners who know that they are sinners, who are under no pretense about our righteousness. This is a table for tax collectors and sinners saved by grace, who know that their righteousness comes from Jesus Christ alone. It is a table where we gather to be with Jesus and with each other as the new family he has created. On the mission he has called us to be on, his mission, the mission of the kingdom, to introduce sinners like us to Jesus. We gather at a table for sinners, inviting more and more sinners to sit and eat with Jesus because Jesus is who we need and Jesus is all we have. Jesus is the one who saves us, and so I want us to take a moment before we eat to pray and to acknowledge that we are sinners saved by his grace, saved by his body broken for us on the cross, his blood poured out for us, his resurrection from the dead. And so as we prepare to eat the bread and drink the cup, I want us to remember what it took for Jesus to save us. Let's pray. Our great God. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you made everything and everyone, and you are the judge of all. We are answerable to you for everything we've done and left undone. And so this morning as we approach this table, we confess the sins we've committed against you. We deserve your condemnation, and yet we receive your grace in Jesus. And yet you heal us with your compassion. As we approach your table, we, we turn from our sins and we are, we are truly sorry for them. We are, they are a weight that we cannot carry. We know that we are all sinners saved by grace. That regularly in thought, word, and deed, we sin. And so as we approach, we confess our sins to you. Familia, let's take a moment to confess our sins silently before the Lord. Heavenly Father, you've loved us with an everlasting love. But we have often gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We're sorry for our sins, and this morning we turn from them. 
for the sake of your son who died for us, would you have mercy on us? Would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us? Would you keep changing us? By, by your Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live for you in every way, for your glory and our good? Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's hold up the bread together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 24, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat and remember together. Jesus, in the garden, before you were betrayed and tortured and crucified for us, you saw what you had to do to save us from our sins. And it was so awful that you prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then, Jesus, you did the most difficult thing ever done. You allowed yourself, the creator, the savior, to be condemned and tortured and killed by those you made and those you came to save. To be killed for us. You poured out your blood to make our salvation sure. You are the lover of our souls. And so as we come to this table and drink this cup, we remember. We remember what you did on the cross. And we pray that you, by the power of your spirit and with your gospel, would shape us that we would not depend on what we can do to earn our place with you or even try to jump a couple places in some kind of made-up hierarchy of Christianity in our head, that we might be desperate and dependent on your gospel and your gospel alone. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's raise the cup together. Paul continues. In chapter 11, verse 25, in the same way also Jesus took this cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Paul ends that passage in 1 Corinthians 11, saying this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Familia, at this table, we remember the gospel that saved us, and we declare our love for Jesus and for one another, and we proclaim that gospel that will see us all the way through to the end, because his grace is enough, and it will never abandon us. May this table continue to point you, continue to point us to the greater meal we'll have in heaven together someday. Until we get there, let's pray and hope. Father, may we never forget what you have done for us in Christ. Jesus, would you draw us closer to you day by day? Spirit, would you empower us to resist temptation to pursue holiness? We trust in you, God. This morning, we entrust ourselves to you. You are the Savior of our souls. And this gospel tells us that we are more loved than we could ever imagine that we are way worse than we could ever believe. And yet you loved us enough to die for us, to come back to life for us, and to call us family, to make us family. We love you and we trust you. In the name of Jesus, amen.